Our speakers tonight are Molly Birnbaum and Dan Souza. A graduate of Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, Ms. Birnbaum is an executive editor of Cook's Science at America's Test Kitchen. She is project editor of the New York Times bestseller, The Science of Good Cooking, as well as Cook's Science Cookbook. She's also a monthly contributor to the Splendid Table public radio program. She was the founding managing editor of Modern Farmer Magazine, a print quarterly and daily website, which won a National Magazine Award in 2013. Dan Souza graduated first in his class from the Culinary Institute of America. He is executive editor of Cook's Science at America's Test Kitchen, as well as an on-screen test cook for the Emmy award-winning show America's Test Kitchen, and a weekly contributor to America's Test Kitchen Radio. A former senior editor for Cook's Illustrated, Mr. Souza has contributed content to a dozen America's Test Kitchen cookbooks, including The Science of Good Cooking and Cook's Science. This evening, they will present the basic science behind different cooking methods that make classic ingredients taste their best. Please join me in welcoming Molly Birnbaum and Dan Souza. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, hello. This is a great turnout. It's great to be here. So I'm Dan, that's Molly, in case there's any confusion. Um, and, and we're like we're here to talk about some science and some food tonight, and we're going to open up to questions at the end. So, if you have a burning food science question, which I'm sure you all do, we can we can address those at the end. Exactly. So we thought we'd start with a little bit of an introduction to America's Test Kitchen. Uh, who's familiar with America's Test Kitchen? A lot of you are. So this might be. A we're going to do it anyway. We're going to do the <laughs> intro anyway. A little anyway. redundant, but. Um, as an overview, America's Test Kitchen is a media company that publishes cooking magazines, cookbooks, we have websites, um, we have a PBS television show and a radio show, the whole nine yards, everything. Um, and one of our favorite ways to introduce this company that Dan and I have both worked at for a number of years now is with a slightly cheesy, you have been warned, video. But it is a video that can really show you what it's like to be at America's Test Kitchen. Twenty refrigerators, thirty-five grills, thirty-six ovens, sixty-four burners, four thousand five hundred sixty-four cookbooks. This is not an ordinary kitchen, and these are not ordinary chefs. In a world where recipes are everywhere, one very special kitchen is making the only ones you'll ever need. Every day, over fifty test cooks come to work. Our test cooks are also scientists, historians, detectives, and artists. And our mission is excellence. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen. We develop the absolute best recipes for all your favorite foods using a one-of-a-kind process we've been perfecting for 20 years. We do everything here as a team. One test cook begins by researching every recipe on record. We find five versions that represent the range of approaches. And we study each variable. The result? A starting point for our recipe. Then we play. 
We test, we taste, and we taste, and we taste. At America's Test Kitchen, we make our recipes 40, 50, 60 times until we get it right. We're the only kitchen that develops recipes like this, and that's why our recipes are the only ones you'll ever need. Our devotion to the home cook doesn't stop with recipes. From which equipment to use, to which products to buy. We rigorously test everything in the consumer cooking universe, so you don't have to. Highly methodical, slightly maniacal, completely unbiased, undeniably accurate. In our quest for perfection, we harness the power of science to unlock the secrets to good cooking. Because cooking is chemistry. We are curious. We are perfectionists. We are devoted. We are a family. We are one kitchen under science. We are America's test kitchen, and we love what we do. That was real testing that Lisa McManus, the head of our tasting and testing team, was doing there with the with the skillets. It was to see if the handles would come off. <laughs> <laughs> she really, yeah, she really is that crazy. Um, so, so that's kind of America's Test Kitchen as a whole. And then, so Molly and I have worked there for a while together, and we wrote the Science of Good Cooking that came out in 2011. And um, and then Molly left for a little while, and we sucked her back in to work on the book that we're going to talk about tonight. And while we were working on that book, which took us a couple of years of our lives, um, we had this other idea. And we really wanted to do something that was a little bit bigger and kind of took us outside of the test kitchen. And our idea turned into what is now Cook Science. So Cook Science is a book. It's also a website. It's cookscience.com. And it is the only free website in the America's Test Kitchen universe. Um, so everyone should uh, check it out. But we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what we do on the website. It's um, a really interesting combination of leaving the test kitchen and doing narrative journalism around food and science, stuff that's happening out there in the world that kind of impacts people's lives, and then bringing that all the way back down into recipes that put that science to use that you can use in your kitchen. So on a Tuesday night, you can make something and understand how that connects to another culture or um, someone who's doing some crazy stuff in a lab. And um, we're really excited about Cook Science, both the book and the website. Um, and so one of the things that I think makes Cook Science the website so fun is that Dan and I both come to food and cooking and science from very different backgrounds. As you heard in our bios, I come from a journalism background. Um, I've been writing uh, about food and science and mainly about the senses and how they work and how we taste for many years. And Dan comes from the restaurant world and he went to culinary school. So Dan is in charge of the kitchen. I am in charge of the narrative stories. And we've had a lot of fun kind of bringing those two things together. And I think they really balance each other out and uh, enhance each of the experiences. Our first story that we ran in July, we only launched in July, so we're still pretty new on cookscience.com, was about one of my favorite foods, ice cream. And to tackle ice cream, what we did is Dan and I went to a nine-day ice cream college at Penn State in like the heart of January last year. It was freezing, there was a snowstorm, and this was a really intensive workshop that was taught by some of the biggest names in dairy science and attended by entrepreneurs who wanted to start their own scoop shop, by people who were just interested in ice cream, and a ton of scientists. So we were in a classroom for 10 hours a day 
learning about the intricacies of commercial ice cream, which is very different than homemade ice cream, which was really fascinating. And there, then, there was like not as much ice cream eating as we expected. There was very right? little there was like, ice cream eating. There was a lot of classroom time and it a lot. It was somewhat disappointing <laughs> yeah. on that side, but it was really fascinating. And so when we came back, uh, Dan started creating recipes based on the science that we learned from this uh, college course, basically. It was like a semester course that you earned in nine days. Um, and using the lessons that we learned, he made some really amazing ice creams for the home cook. So that story ran in July. And it was uh, really wonderful to see. These are two very big dairy scientists here on, on your left, and they um, took those popsicles incredibly seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Serious business. Um, so, um, actually, I think most recently we published a piece all about noodles. So, right now on Cook Science, we're basically chasing after stories that we find really interesting and going after recipes that we love. So, they're, they're both ways that kind of get us, uh, get us out there. And this one happened to be a nice combination where we're obsessed with noodles and we also found a really interesting story to tell around them. So, uh, there's a, a gentleman who's actually on the other side there, uh, Ken Albala, who is a food studies professor out in um, California. And he has, has a blog where he just tries to make every kind of noodle under the sun. And he looks at old recipes and tries to recreate them. And he's doing some crazy stuff. And so uh, we sent a journalist out there to kind of profile him and what he does. And one of the cooler noodles that he works with is a style of hand-pulled noodles. If you guys have not had hand-pulled noodles, um, they're pretty awesome. They're usually very chewy and stretchy. And there's a million different ways to pull them. Um, but so we kind of we took his, his advice on it, and we started studying some of the science behind it. And then we brought it back into the kitchen, and we developed recipes for, uh, for a really cool flat hand-pulled noodle that is actually really easy to make. It's, I think, one of the easiest homemade pastas that you can make. So you make a dough in a food processor, and you let it sit overnight. And then the next day, you cut up into pieces, and you, and you pull, and you slap, and you stretch. And it's like acrobatic and really cool, and you end up with these thick kind of parpadel pasta, um, super chewy noodles, which are awesome. They're so delicious. And today, actually, in the office, we were filming a video for these noodles so that we can put it on our website and people can see more of how you make these handful noodles. And we thought it would be fun if we had every member of our team, even those of us like me who had never tried pulling handful noodles before, <laughs> to like get in front of the camera and do it for the first time then. And I really thought I was going to look like a complete fool, but they you, were so you easy it, yeah. that I didn't. So we thought maybe that's like, how easy they are. Maybe your belly would get in the way. Yeah, I was going to drape them on my <laughs> very pregnant belly, but it didn't work. Um, and so what we're here to talk about tonight is our newest book called Cook Science, which came out this fall and is something that Dan and I have worked on for a couple of years, uh, and we really love it. And it is a companion book to the first book we worked on together, The Science of Good Cooking. The Science of Good Cooking, we looked at 50 different cooking techniques, the science behind them, how they worked, and compared them with recipes that we published as well. In Cook Science, we looked at ingredients. So it's 50 different ingredients, our favorite ingredients, ones that we use all the time. Some are a little bit more special occasion, like we have a chapter on lobster, but most are ones that you use on a daily basis. And we looked at how to unlock flavor in each of these ingredients using science. Uh, we wrote essays about each one. Dan did an experiment in the test kitchen to really show how each of these ingredients work and how you can make them better. 
And one of the things I love about this book, if anyone has it or looks at it afterwards, we have full-page color illustrations really getting at the science of each of these different ingredients. And then, of course, there are many recipes to pair with all of them. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the first ingredient. We're going to take you through a couple of our, our the biggest hits of the book uh, in our mind. So uh, the first one is flank steak. So we have everything from kind of meats and, and dairy and cheeses, vegetables, and um, nuts and olive oil in there. But um, in the meat section, we covered flank steak, which is a really interesting cut. Uh, it has really great flavor. A lot of people tend to think that it can be a little bit tough. Um, and so we did a deep dive into it. And we have a, a video here where my, my face will be like 30 feet tall. Um, so we're going to play that. And then we will talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, we really like using videos to show the science of some of these things. And you can also see some of, the, some of the equipment that we used. One of the things we tried very hard to do in this book is use data and collect data, which is hard when you're writing about flavor. So you can see some of the things that we did. have a bad habit of categorizing raw cuts of beef as either tender or tough, when in reality the nature of the cut itself is really only part of the picture. How a steak is cooked and to what final internal temperature will greatly influence tenderness, as will how you slice it. Now cutting matters not only at the butcher shop, but also at home, and especially when it comes time for carving. The most important consideration? Whether you cut with or against the grain, or orientation of the muscle fibers. Cutting with the grain means slicing parallel to the muscle fibers, and against means slicing perpendicular. Now this is crucial with steaks like skirt, hanger, and flank, which have wide muscle fibers, a relatively high proportion of connective tissue, and clear longitudinal grain. Now to quantify how much of an influence carving direction has on tenderness, we ran an experiment. We cooked a flank steak, and for comparison purposes, a section of strip loin, which is where we get New York strip from. Now it features thin muscle fibers and little connective tissue. We put them in a temperature-controlled water bath and cooked both into an internal temperature of 130 degrees. We then used an ultra-sensitive piece of equipment called a CT3 texture analyzer from Brookfield Engineering to test how much force was required to bite into the meat. We tested this both when the meat was carved with the grain and when it was carved against the grain. And we found that a slice of flank steak carved against the grain took on average 383 grams of force to bite 5 millimeters into the meat while flank carved with the grain required an average of 1,729 grams to travel the same distance. In other words, it took four times as much force for the machine to bite steak sliced with the grain versus sliced against. Now, that's a huge difference. All cuts will benefit from slicing against the grain, but it really pays to execute the step correctly when dealing with cuts from the flank. And while most cooks would argue that flank is much less tender than the expensive strip steak, that's not necessarily true. When we compared both steaks sliced with the grain, we found that flank was indeed 193% tougher than strip. However, when we compared the two steaks sliced against the grain, that number dropped to just 16%. Our tasters' comments closely mirrored this data, and that's why flank, when properly prepared, can rival premium steaks that cost significantly more. This is the science of good cooking. So I think there's, there's a few things to kind of take away from that. One is that you can watch our other videos. Um, uh, one is that, you know, in order to get more data and, and kind of quantify things that otherwise we'd be relying on 
you know, people to do and really get more subjective um, kind of information, we need, we need to kind of control as many variables as we can. And that's one of the biggest challenges we have in the test kitchen. We try and be as much like a lab in a lot of ways uh, as we possibly can. And so the, the first piece of uh, equipment that I was using there, which is a, uh, called a, um, a sous vide circulator or an immersion circulator, and what that does is it actually can hold a water bath at a very precise temperature. So within usually a tenth of a degree of what you set it at. And they're actually pretty popular now uh, in high-end restaurants, and, and you can find them for home cooks as well. And so what that allows me to do is to cook two steaks and, and know that they are cooked exactly the same, that there is no variability. So if one steak is tougher, I know it's not because the internal temperature was higher. Uh, so that's a really important one. And then you saw us kind of going a little bit crazy with that texture analyzer, um, but we've used it on a number of different things now. And that's not its intended purpose. It's used in industry to measure, like, the consistency of mayonnaise, like from batch to batch, but um, we started playing around with it and, it and it proved really useful for this sort of thing. Um, but that was one of the big focuses of the book was these really simple takeaways. Like when you cook your flank steak next time, make sure you look at the grain and you're slicing across it to make it really tender. Um, and it's a nice visual way to, to see that. And so our next kind of big ticket ingredient is kale. And I know kale is super hip and super trendy and very healthy, and a lot of people don't like it. Um, <laughs> but we actually kind of found ways to make it better, which was exciting. Dan has not really been a kale fan mm -mm. in his life, but he eventually came around through our experimentation. And I think the two things that are tricky about kale is one, Raw kale salads are very big right now, but kale can be incredibly tough. The second thing is that kale can also be very bitter. And they are intertwined, these two things, because to make kale less tough when you still want to uh, have a raw kale salad, you need to kind of massage it. This is something we do a lot with raw kale for salads. We, you just basically put the, put the leaves between your fingers, massage it. It breaks down some of the cell walls. It makes the leaves much more tender. It's much more pleasant to eat texture-wise. It's very relaxing for you and the kale. It's right? a very zen, it's a zen thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is that the flavor of kale really only comes out when you start to break down the cells within it. When you break down the cells within kale, an enzyme starts to interact with a sulfur-containing compound the two are not connected before you start breaking them down. But when they do start interacting, they create a third totally new compound, which tastes incredibly bitter. So in the act of massaging, or chopping or chewing, you're creating this bitter flavor. And so if you want tender kale, you're also getting more bitter kale. And what we did in an experiment for this book is something incredibly simple, which really changed the way kale tasted for us in a raw salad. And it's all about the order of operations. Basically, you massage the kale, you chop it, you massage it, have it totally ready for the salad, and then you wash it. So instead of washing your kale first and then preparing it, you wash off all the bitter compounds after you've done these things to the kale. And it's a small thing, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And it's one that we really love. We actually published a kale salad on the Cook Science site this week, mm. and it is hands down the best kale salad I have ever had. And part of it is this massage kale salad. Um, which we have a dressing with almonds and parsley and lemon. Yeah. It's a very like bright green, creamy dressing. And then we top it with kale chips. So you basically bake kale in an oven with some oil until it gets super crispy, mm -hmm. break it up a little bit, mix it with a little bit of salt and sugar and sesame seeds. Yep. 
little bit of cayenne. A little cayenne, yep. And then you sprinkle that on top of the creamy massage kale salad. So it's kale on kale. Kale on kale. Two different types of textures. Yep. It, it is a great gateway to kale if you're not a fan already. <laughs> the kale gateway. It's a great salad. All right, next one is Parmesan. So this, this is an experiment I really love doing. Uh, it was a little tedious, but uh, the results are pretty interesting. So who spends the big money on the real Parmesan? The Parmigiano-Reggiano, the Italian stuff. Okay, good. You guys are in the right place. Um, so what's really interesting is, so that wheel right there weighs 84 pounds. And that's, that's how that stuff is made in these enormous wheels. And so in the test kitchen, we get in quarter wheels, a quarter of that, and we break them down ourselves because we use a ton of Parmesan. And in doing so, a lot of times, like, you know, people will snack on little bites of it, and as you're breaking it, like, sh you know, shreds come off. And kind of anecdotally, people seem to always go for the stuff that is near the rind and kind of tend to prefer it. So I wanted to do, a, you know, a completely unbiased treatment and just really look at what's going on inside of a wheel of Parmesan, and is there really better Parmesan within that? Um, and so what I did was I took samples from the very core of this quarter wheel and then pieces from the outside. And I did a couple of things. One is I did a blind tasting. So we do a lot of blind tastings in the test kitchen. Ideally, we do them double blind so the person putting on the test doesn't know which sample is which and the people tasting it don't. Um, and then you have a key that you can kind of piece it all together. Gets rid of a lot of biases. And so we had people taste from the interior and the exterior. And we asked them about the, the flavor and the texture. And every single person preferred the cheese that came from near the rind on the outside. They found it to be crumblier, a little bit drier, which is a good thing for Parmesan, more intensely flavored, and I think maybe most importantly, full of those crunchy little crystals, which I absolutely love, I think most people do. And those are, those are aggregates of an, of an amino acid that only really happens with advanced aging. So you find that in aged Goudas, in aged Parmesan. And so I also took slices from those two places and I counted those crystals. This was the tedious part. And we found that there are about 10 times as many of those crystals out by the rind. So then we're like, okay, so what's actually going on here? And it's kind of helpful to think of that, that, uh, the aging process for a big piece of cheese like that, like a roast going into an oven. So we take a big roast and put it into an oven. It's a very hot environment and it heats up on the outside first and then that heat is conducted through the meat to the center. So you have a gradient where it's hotter on the outside. And that's pretty much how it works. With, with cheese, it also ages faster from the outside. So when we talk about Parmesan, older cheese is gonna be more expensive, more flavorful, all that good stuff. And within a wheel, there's a pretty big difference between what's in the center and what's on the outside because it's so large. So when you go to the store, the big takeaway is that you wanna look for pieces that absolutely have some of the rind on the outside. You get to see the stamp, which you know it's the real deal. Ideally, you're looking for pieces that are on a corner. So they've got more rind on both sides. You might tend to avoid those because there's less usable cheese, but the cheese there is going to be older, older tasting and, and better. So it's a more bang for your buck. And then you can throw the rinds into a soup. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's usable. It's totally usable. Exactly. Uh, our next ingredient is salmon. And we looked at salmon uh, mainly in that salmon comes in a bunch of different varieties. Uh, the biggest ones are farmed versus wild. And when we, we cook a lot of salmon in the test kitchen, we've done it a lot at Cook Science, and what we really realized is that wild salmon and farm salmon are almost like two different fish because they cook so differently. Oftentimes, wild salmon is much more firm. Farm salmon is, has more fat. It's a little bit more tender. And we were wondering what was going on there. So when we looked into it, we realized that the difference is coming down to its collagen 
and uh, protein content and that wild salmon has a lot more of this collagen protein and more cross links between it so it's a much firmer fish and we're going to show you a video so you can see yourself and kind of the conclusion we came to and how to cook them differently. Most home cooks pay close attention to internal temperature when cooking a steak, where we know just five degrees means the difference between rare and medium rare. But few people pay that much attention when dealing with fish, which is really too bad because even fatty fish like salmon can go from tender and moist to chalky and dry in a flash. In the test kitchen, we used an instant read digital thermometer to tell when salmon is done. And we've always preferred it cooked to 125 degrees for the ideal balance of firm yet silky flesh. The majority of the salmon we cook is farmed Atlantic, but as we've cooked more wild species, we started to wonder if 125 was maybe a bit too high. To find out, we bought multiple fillets of the four most common species of wild Pacific salmon. King, also known as Chinook, Sockeye, Coho, and Chum. We cooked samples of each to both 120 degrees and 125 degrees sous vide, or sealed in a plastic bag and cooked in a temperature-controlled water bath. We also did the same for samples of farmed Atlantic salmon. We then asked tasters, blind to the differences in internal temperature, to pick which sample had the best texture. Everyone preferred the coho, sockeye, and chum samples cooked to 120 degrees, and the farmed Atlantic cooked to 125. While a few folks preferred the king sample at 125 degrees, the majority preferred 120. These results may sound surprising. After all, salmon is salmon, right? Well, not exactly. It turns out that farmed Atlantic salmon differs in two important ways from the half dozen commercial wild varieties caught in the Pacific Ocean. One, due to their sedentary life, the collagen protein in farmed Atlantic salmon contains less chemical crosslinks than in wild varieties, which translates into softer flesh. And two, farmed Atlantic salmon contains more fat than any wild variety, and up to four times as much fat as the leanest species. And we know that fat provides the perception of juiciness when cooked. So, with naturally firmer flesh and less fat to provide lubrication, wild salmon can have the texture of overcooked fish even at 125 degrees. By cooking wild salmon to just 120 degrees, the muscle fibers contract less and stay moist and tender. This is the science of good cooking. So it really is this five degree difference that makes a huge difference when it comes to the final texture of your fish. Okay, next up is mushrooms, the lowly button mushroom. Uh, so mushrooms are really interesting. They're, when we started looking at the recipes that we had in the section, the mushroom section, uh, we do a lot of things to kind of double check and make sure our recipes are lining up and, and kind of work together. And we noticed that the cooking times were just all over the place. Like we had recipes where mushrooms were cooked for five minutes and we had ones where they were stewed for over an hour. And so it got us wondering, like, what other foods do we do that with? And there, there aren't a lot that kind of fit that bill. So we started to do a little bit of a closer look at mushrooms, kind of how their structure works and, and what makes them kind of tick. And so what I did was I, I got a Dutch oven and kind of made a steamer basket set up out of it, right? And I put in little cubes of uh, portobello mushroom, uh, beef tenderloin, and also zucchini. So three very different things. I've got kind of animal, vegetable, and, and fungus. And um, I put them in the steamer basket, and I cooked them for 45 minutes, steamed for 45 minutes. And at five-minute intervals, I took them out, 
and I measured their, their firmness or you know, toughness, mushiness with the texture analyzer that you saw, uh, that big yellow box and the other one. And, uh, and then we kind of looked at, at how they worked. And it was really interesting because so after five minutes, as you might imagine, the tenderloin was not very good, right? So you steam it for 10, for, and it's a small little piece, for like 10 minutes, and it's tough, and it's kind of dry. The zucchini lasted maybe 15 minutes, and then it was kind of completely mush, whereas the mushroom, after 45 minutes, was almost the exact same texture, the same number value we got as when we first put it in there. And so that's kind of crazy. It seems like maybe we shouldn't be eating mushrooms. Maybe there's something, uh, <laughs> something wrong with them. Um, but so what's really interesting is, so the structure of mushrooms is, uh, is basically dependent on a polymer called chitin. And chitin is found in the shells of a lot of crustacean, like lobster and, um, and shrimp. And it's a, a heat-stable polymer. So over time, it doesn't really change all that much. On the other hand, you look at tenderloin, it's made up of these proteins that with heat, they coagulate and get tighter and tighter. And then zucchini is made up of pectin and these um, celluloses that break down with heat. And so it's, it's this kind of stable thing that we find in mushrooms. And because of that, we've, we, we've kind, of <laughs> kind of termed them like the, if you like, feel like you're going to over, you know, overcook something or mess up dinner tonight, or you're just like, not like on 100, like cook mushrooms. Because you can cook them for like a short period of time, a long period of time, and, um, and you can't mess them up. Can't mess them up. It's the food you can't mess up. Exactly. And we all, use, we all need one of those, you know? Yeah. This wasn't the most delicious taste test that we've ever done <laughs> in, in our lives. Steamed overcooked beef and yeah. mushy zucchini. No, it wasn't the best. The machine did all the tasting, though. Right? That's true. That yeah. is true. Um, all right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much.